God's Word speaks to the most complex issues that we face today. When we look at these seemingly complex issues like abortion or euthanasia, gender and transgenderism, racism, the problem of immigration and the refugee crisis, religious liberty, when we look at these seemingly complex issues through the lens of God's Word, they become amazingly clear, don't they? I mean, we may still have to to figure out some of the specific solutions. That may need to be worked out, but God's Word gives us a very clear and strong foundation upon which we can build. Now, of all the topics we've covered so far in this series, today's, I thought, really is an issue that touches all of us, maybe more than the others do. Because most of us have struggled with accepting and valuing people who are different from us. You know, and and it, it can be different colors of skin. It can be different socioeconomic backgrounds. It can be different football teams that they root for, right? I mean, we, we all have this struggle of learning to accept and value people who are different from us. You know, I grew up in East Tennessee. Go Vols! I, sorry, I had, to, I had to throw that in there. That's my one. Um, I grew up in East Tennessee and, and in the mountains. And in my high school of about 1,500 students, there were maybe, and this is just my rough guesstimate, there were maybe 10 who were non-white students. 10 out of 1,500. So I grew up in a place where everybody pretty much looked like me. And I was very sheltered, you might say, in that way. And when I moved off to college in Nashville, and then I went down to uh, Fort Worth in the Dallas area, and then when I came here, I certainly began to see the world as, as a bigger place and began to see the world through different eyes. I can remember when I first came here and I was uh, doing the uh, basketball outreach program we used to have on Monday nights. Uh, we would just sort of open up the gym and people from the community could come and play. And we would have sometimes, you know, 80, 90 guys in there to play basketball on those Monday nights and every single one of them were African-American. And I remember that first night that I was in there thinking to myself, I'm in a room with more black people than I've ever been with in my entire life. And that was true. So I own up to that as I come to this topic tonight. That is part of my story. That is part of my reality. And the stories and realities of our African-American friends and neighbors are no less valid than my story or than your stories. And if we can listen to each other's stories... If we can acknowledge the reality of life for those who are different from us, you know, I can't help but think that would go a long way toward helping us as a country come together instead of allowing things to divide us and drive us apart. We've got to listen to each other's stories. I freely acknowledge, again, that my perspective on this issue is very one-sided. And so as, as I was praying about and preparing for this message this past week, I decided that I needed to spend some time speaking with some African Americans about their experiences, listening to their stories with an open mind and an open heart. And so I did. I, I called up some pastors. I, I talked to just some people. I talked to people that work here, like, like Cookie. And, and I just I wanted to listen to their stories. And as I did, my heart broke over sitting across a table from someone, looking them in the eye and hearing them share stories 
of the injustice that they've suffered, of the disrespect, of the assumptions people had about them simply because of the color of their skin, the hatred that they had to endure. And I encourage you this morning as we explore this topic to think about your history, your story, your individual perceptions. And understand this, no, not everyone has experienced life the way you and I have experienced it. Now, I think that's one of the values of going on mission trips to places like West Virginia or Honduras. It's, it's that you get to see how other people really live their lives. We, we can become so apathetic and so calloused or ignorant to how billions of people on this planet live and the things they have to endure, the things they experience that, thank the Lord, you and I probably never have to experience. But we can't dismiss those experiences as we listen to them. We also need to listen not just to their stories, but to their hopes and dreams as well because really that's a place we can all find common ground. It doesn't matter... Where you come from, what language you speak, what color your skin is, we all want to enjoy a good life, don't we? We all want what's best for our children. We all want to enjoy the freedoms afforded us as American citizens in this country. So I want you to listen to these powerful and famous words from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's from his I Have a Dream speech. He said, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It's a beautiful dream. And the thing about that dream is it's also God's dream. In Revelation chapter 7, we see this vision of what awaits all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. God revealed to John this vision of the future, this vision of perfect unity among all peoples in heaven. He said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In heaven, there will be the greatest diversity of human beings that you could ever imagine. And Dr. King dreamed not only of that kind of unity in heaven, but that God's kingdom of love would come and God's will for Christian unity would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So let's allow God's story to shape how we should think about racial issues and ethnic differences and how we should act toward immigrants and refugees. And we begin, as we've done each Sunday in this series, we go back to the beginning. We look at God's good creation where we see unity in diversity, Because God created people in His image, male and female, as a reflection of the unity and diversity that we find in the triune God Himself. We talked about that last week, that male and female are equal in worth and value because they are bearers of God's image. But they're also unique with complementary roles and qualities. 
And when we consider the beauty of being created equal yet distinct, that broadens our view of gender and of race and ethnicity. Our story begins with one family, doesn't it? A man and a woman created in God's image. A husband and a wife joined together as one flesh and blessed by God. People have asked and wondered, you know, what race were Adam and Eve? You know, were, they, were they white? Were they black? Were they brown? What race were Adam and Eve? Well, I've got a very simple answer to that question. They were the same race we are, the human race. They were humans. And so when we talk about race in terms of black and white and brown or whatever, that, that's a misunderstanding of human nature. What we are really talking about are different ethnicities. Because we're all the same race. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We are all members of the same human family, and ultimately we share the same human story. In Acts 17, 26, Paul said this, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. See, the storyline of Scripture depicts a basic unity behind human diversity. From the beginning, God designed a human family that would originate from one father and one mother. So if that's the case, how did we become so diverse with so many languages scattered over all the earth as, as people of different ethnicities and cultures? How did that happen? Well, you remember that God was determined to fill His world with His people. The people He created in His image and for His glory. But as mankind did in the garden... And before and after the flood, humanity was once again disobedient. And they rebelled against God's command. This time they rebelled against His command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? When humanity chose to settle in one place, to make a name for themselves, to establish a city and a tower whose height would reach to heaven. And so God both blessed and cursed them by confounding their language. You may say, bless them. How is that a blessing? Well, the blessing is that mankind now had to actually do what God created them in His image to do, to spread out, to multiply, and to fill the earth. They were finally fulfilling their calling, their purpose, to spread the Creator's image throughout the world and to further exhibit God's desire for variety with equality and beauty in diversity. See, God wanted them to spread out over the earth. He wanted them living on all the different continents and all the different places. They just, they were stubborn. They didn't want to go. So God confused their language to, to force their hand and to get them to go. That was the blessing of Babel. But we also see the curse as the differences resulted in divisions. And that brings us to the next part of our human story. Our destructive failure. Sin. And the alienation that results. You see, when humanity failed to fill the earth on their own, again, God confused their language to send them out. And, and the different languages resulted in divisions as people naturally gravitated toward those most like themselves. See, because sin had planted distrust deep in the human heart for otherness. Because of sin, we have a deep distrust for those who are other who are different, 
who are outside of our tribe. And people quickly developed an us-versus-them mentality and wickedness spilled into wars among nations and conflicts among clans. And the page of human history, that they're filled with ethnic animosity. We see this all the way back, really, in Eden. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you see that dividing nature of sin as Adam and Eve hid from each other and from God. As they started pointing fingers and passing the blame, their relationship became strained with jealousy, resentment, and domination. And we still see such divisions, separation, distrust, and animosity today between men and women, between different ethnic groups, between nations. We distrust each other. We fight for power and prestige. We point fingers and pass the buck. We cut ourselves off from each other and fail to listen, forgive, and work together for the common good. Sin always results in division. It always results in people being driven apart and separated from one another and from God. It pits people against each other, opposing and resenting the very image of God in the other person. So when we talk about racial problems, we're really talking about sin problem. In fact, one African-American professor at, Southern, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote this, The Christian gospel tells us that racism fundamentally exists because of sin. Racism is an evil ideology of hate which shows itself more clearly through violent or prejudicial actions. But racism exists even without those violent or prejudicial actions because of sin. And then he poses an interesting question. Could the very construct of race be one more manifestation of the sin of racism? Racism begetting the very idea of race? Like I said, we are all one race. And I believe that it is sinful to try and see each other as anything less than brothers and sisters as fellow bearers of God's image. See, the God of the Bible passionately loves all people groups. After the nations rebelled against God at Babel, the Lord called a specific group of people to become His own. The nation of Israel, descended from Abraham, descended from Shem, son of Noah, descended from Adam. And God promised to bless these ethnic descendants of Abraham But the purpose of His blessing extended far beyond them to all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Look in Genesis 12, 1-3 with me. We see this after the Tower of Babel. In chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this promise is reiterated over and over again throughout the Old Testament as God declared His desire for all nations to behold His glory 
and experience His grace. In other words, God was working among and blessing His people Israel not just for their sake, but for the sake of His name among all the nations. See, God's blessing is never just for ourselves. And the Old Testament prophets, they often called the people to remember God's love for the nations and their role as priests on the earth. See, all of history is headed toward that day we read about in Revelation 7 when worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and language will assemble around the throne of God and give Him the praise that He's due. And we see that goal anticipated from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And this leads us to where the Bible grounds our understanding of human diversity. It grounds it in human ethnicity. I like to use the language of Genesis 10.31. It tells us that we compose clans in separate nations that speak different languages and live in diverse territories. It doesn't speak in terms of race. And with the globalization of the world and with the migration of people across continents and into cities, these clans and separate nations with different languages now often live in the same territory. That's why the concept of ethnicity, I think, is so helpful. Because it includes all of these factors, as well as social, cultural, lingual, historical, and religious characteristics. You know, there are about 200 nations in the world today. And I know that kind of changes from day to day sometimes. But there's roughly 200 nations in the world. But there are between 11 and 16,000 ethno-linguistic people groups, which all each possess common identities, histories, customs, practices, and languages. 11 to 16,000 different languages and clans and territories. So let's review what we've discovered so far this morning. God has created all people around the world of every color, of every ethnicity and language, and He's created them in His image. We are all loved by God and placed on this earth for His purpose and His glory. And God desires for us to celebrate and affirm our diversity while at the same time being united in mutual love, care, and partnership. But, because of sin, none of these wonderful things are happening, are they? Or at least very few of them are. Instead, we are cut off from each other, distrusting one another, denying God's image in each other. Rather than affirm and celebrate our diversity, we harbor hate, fear, and resentment towards others while gravitating towards those who are the same as us. In a way, every time we do that, we recreate Babel. We shun the otherness to stick to the sameness that we're comfortable with. So what's the solution? I mean, the Bible paints this beautiful picture of brotherly love. It paints this beautiful portrait of brotherly love while at the same time holding up the mirror to show us our own sin and ugliness and intolerance. So is there any hope? What hope does the gospel give for changing this and helping us to realize this beautiful dream that God has for the world? Well, that brings us to the third part of our shared human story. It's God's overcoming love that brings unity in Jesus. See, in Jesus we see God beginning to fulfill His promise to Abraham 
and His purpose for Israel. It's what happens in the ministry of Jesus and what He did on the cross. And then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we begin to see God reversing the curse of Babel as people from different languages and nations came together and as if in one tongue they heard the gospel being preached. In the Great Commission, Jesus commands His followers to engage all peoples around the world with the truth of the gospel. You see, Jesus desires disciples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that is the church. The church is the community of God's people called out from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Sadly, in our short history, the church in America, in our short history, we haven't always reflected God's heart for seeing people with equal worth and dignity. Pre-Civil War pastors and churches often twisted God's Word to justify slavery. And just as tragic are those who... Also use Scripture to justify racial segregation, Jim Crow laws. That wasn't that long ago. See, the Bible is clear. Anything that undercuts the dignity of any man or woman is a sin. Let me say that again. The Bible clearly teaches that anything that undercuts the dignity of any man or woman as created in the image of God, loved by Jesus, someone for whom He died on the cross, is a sin. It is a rejection of God's character, a violation of God's Word, and a denial of God's Gospel. We, the church, must stand against such attitudes and actions and there is plenty of injustice today against which we, the church, must stand and speak the truth of God's overcoming love. Just a few examples I wanted to share today. One is modern-day slavery. Slavery didn't end with the Civil War. 27 million people around the world today are enslaved. Let that sink in. 27 million people there's only seven and a half million people that live in the state of Georgia. 27 million people around the world today live in slavery. Many of them are working in sweatshops in Asia, making the clothes that we wear. Or they're doing hard labor in India, making bricks. Or they're sex slaves in some of the wealthiest cities on earth, including right here in the United States. We need to speak out against this injustice. We need to pray for their freedom. We need to support ministries and policies that will put an end to all forms of slavery. Another example is religious persecution and ethnic cleansing. When we hear religious persecution, we think, man, that, that, that stuff, that happened in the 20th century, that happened in the... In the Middle Ages with the Spanish Inquisition. Now that happened to the early church. But there are more Christians being persecuted around the world today than throughout all human history combined. And when we hear about ethnic cleansing, I mean, that stuff happened in the 20th century. That's World War II and Cold War stuff. I mean, that's... But it's happening more in the 21st century than it ever did in the 20th century. Again... These things may be happening out of our sight in other countries, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't shine a light on these topics. 
That doesn't mean that we can't write our elected officials and try to, to help them understand our heart for the persecution and for the injustice to humanity that's happening around the world. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for an end to those atrocities. Now, there's the issue of immigration and refugees. Now, this one I know hits a little closer to home. Maybe more than any other election, U.S. immigration laws and, and the global refugee crisis have really come to the forefront of this presidential election. But I want you to think about this. If all people are created in God's image with equal worth and dignity, then do not the immigrants and the refugees living in our midst deserve to be treated with dignity and respect? Are they not created in the image of God? Are they not loved by Jesus Christ? Are we not commanded to love and serve them in the name of Christ? See, we need to prayerfully consider how we as Christians treat and talk about immigrants and refugees. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Yes, he's writing to Christians. How does he refer to Christians in this verse? We are foreigners and exiles. We heard in our Old Testament reading how God often reminded Israel that they were once, once aliens and strangers in Egypt. And as such, they were to treat the immigrant and the foreigner in their midst with love and compassion. That God showed no favoritism, no partiality for them over the alien living in their midst, but that God's commands and God's blessing applied to them all equally. As Christians, we are all migrants on this earth, are we not? We're all just passing through. We're pilgrims. This is not our home. And the Bible in Hebrews calls believers in Christ sojourners and exiles who desire a better country, seeking a homeland, a city that is yet to come. So is it possible that the more we educate ourselves and learn about or the more we get involved in the lives of immigrants, the better we might understand the gospel? The better we might understand ourselves? as sojourners and exiles on this earth. Now, I understand that immigration law and protecting our borders, these are complex issues that need to be addressed. And, and there are no easy solutions to them. But what is clear is that God loves the immigrant and the refugee. Amen? Do you, do you believe that, that God loves them? And that God expects us to love them as well? See, God desires for the immigrant and the refugee to know Him and to love Him and to experience salvation through Christ. And God expects us as the church to think first on these issues from a gospel perspective before we think about them from a political perspective. So whether or not a great, huge, beautiful wall is built, and Mexico pays for it, whether we welcome 10,000 more Syrian refugees into our country or not, and regardless of how you feel about either of those politically, the fact is that immigrants and refugees are here in our midst. And more are going to come. God has brought the world to our doorstep. Think about it that way. The foreigners and exiles in our midst been brought here by God. Did not Paul say in Acts 17, 26 that God has determined 
the places for these people to live. Jesus commanded us to go into all nations and make disciples. Well, guess what? As Americans now, we don't have to cross the globe to do that. We just have to cross the street. We just have to talk to the people working at the stores that we visit. God has brought the world to us that we might make disciples. Another tough issue that I think the gospel addresses is one of racial tension. We have a lot of racial tension in our country today. I've heard from several of you, people who were actually there in the 1960s, that have said that the racial tension today is as as bad as it ever was then. And I must admit, I find it impossible to put myself in the shoes of a black man, especially one living in poverty in the inner city, But I can't easily put myself into the shoes of a white police officer either who's patrolling those streets. So I'm standing sort of on the outside, uh, on both sides of of the issue today, trying to look in and decide and prayerfully, how how do I look at this through the Word of God? Because really, distrust and blame are on both sides. And it's systematic. It's I'm sorry, it's systemic. It's deeply rooted. And it's the result of sinful human hearts. Dr. Keene spoke these sobering words to the church. He said, There was a time when the church was very powerful, when it was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning. He did not write that in, in 2016, but he sure could have. Those words, I think, were prophetic because I think, by and large, our culture has dismissed the church as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for 21st century people. That is where we stand today. Through apathy and accommodation, we have abdicated our role as salt and light, as proclaimers of God's truth. Out of fear of being too political or offensive, we as the church have become silent on issues of human worth and dignity. And most churches today aren't willing to reach across socioeconomic boundaries and do the hard work of racial reconciliation or helping people achieve economic independence. And so we've abdicated that to the media, to Hollywood, to Washington. See, it's far too easy for us to dismiss the plight of minorities in this country as just a political issue. But what if instead we listened with openness and compassion, actually seeking to understand the other person? What if Christians spoke grace, forgiveness, humility, and love in today's racial tension? What if we showed by our actions that our African-American neighbors, friends, and co-workers' lives really do matter to us personally? We as a church should be heartbroken over the racism and bigotry of our ancestors. And we should confess and repent of our own biases and prejudices. We must pray for God to help us to see beyond the tension that exists between blacks and whites or any other ethnicity and to ask for and extend forgiveness and to see each other as fellow bearers of God's image and if we're Christians, to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
before He went to the cross, Jesus prayed for that kind of unity. He said, He prayed that all of them may be one Father just as You are in Me and I am in You. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. I have given them the glory that You gave Me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God is most glorified when His church is most unified. And what would happen in this country if every Bible-preaching, New Testament church of every color and language came together in their communities in true solidarity to cooperate together to minister to and reach their communities with the gospel? What would happen? I think the mainstream media's minds would blow. They wouldn't know what kind of headline to run. They wouldn't know what to make of that because it doesn't fit the narrative. Just imagine what would happen to this country if the church in America could do that. In our New Testament reading, Colossians 3.11, it says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, barbarian or Scythian, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, because Christ is all and is in all. God has designed the church to be a diverse body unified by our common identity in Christ. We share a bond that's stronger than any earthly family, greater than genetics, because the blood of our Savior has given us new life through faith in Him. We share one heavenly Father. However, we look at the state of our churches today and we see as much or more segregation, distrust, and disinterest as, as we do in the culture at large. And this isn't unique to us. The early church struggled with this too. Their problem was, was between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And so in Ephesians 2, Paul says of Jesus, For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And what he means by that is the Old Testament law and the divisions in the temple that kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate. And what Paul is telling us is that our differences and our hostilities can be overcome by the gospel. Because Jesus came to reconcile not just us to God, but us to one another. And Paul goes on to say, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of His household. So in Christ, we are no longer foreigners and exiles from one another because we've been made citizens together of one heavenly kingdom. Now, Paul isn't advocating a colorblind society that pretends differences doesn't exist. The gospel never denies the obvious ethnic, cultural, or historical differences that distinguish us, and nor does it downplay those as superficial issues. The gospel recognizes that all people are created in God's image equally. And this God who loves variety has diversified humanity according to clans and languages as a creative reflection of His grace and glory. And so the gospel compels us to celebrate our ethnic distinctions, to value our cultural differences, to acknowledge our historical diversity, and even forgive each other for when those histories have been dreadful. So what then would the gospel of Christ have you do today? Based on all of this, four quick things. One, pray. Pray for all people. 
regardless of the color of their skin or their nationality. Ask God's blessing on them. Pray for their salvation and their sanctification. Let's pray for our, our, our sister churches in this community of different colors. Let's pray for God's peace to reign in our country in places like Charlotte or Ferguson or Baltimore. Let's pray that we as a nation would deal with the immigration and refugee crisis with wisdom and compassion. Second, as one African-American New Testament scholar said, Christians must be honest about our racist past to answer some of the complicated questions in our racist present. Moreover, progress will be difficult, if not impossible, if we deny that racism still exists individually and systematically in both church and society. So let's be honest. Let's examine ourselves. And where we need to, let's confess and repent. Third, let's get to know different ethnicities in our community. Think for just a moment about the natural diversity or lack thereof in your own social circles. And I'll admit, mine's not as diverse as it, as it should be. But what if we all sought to befriend those who are ethnically or culturally different from us? At work, at school, in our neighborhoods, at the ball field? What if we sought to build or strengthen those relationships? What if we genuinely sought reconciliation with them? What if our church partnered with sister churches of other colors in our community? See, unless we are intentional about seeking more diverse relationships, our social circles often just become homogenous. And too often what starts off as a simple preference to be around those most like us becomes a sinful prejudice against those who are different from us. And finally, we must stand against any and all forms of racism in legal and peaceful ways. We must hold our elected and appointed officials accountable whenever they fail to uphold justice or treat people with anything less than the dignity and respect they deserve as human beings made in God's image. I challenge you to join me in working on these things. To pray, to, to, to honestly examine ourselves, to, to intentionally diversify our social circles, to hear stories and to get to understand people better, and to work to always uphold justice. But I want us to begin by doing one thing together before we stand and sing our hymn of invitation. I want us to pray. Would you pray with me? God, help us to see all people as created in Your image. Help us discover ways we can intentionally build relationships with people who are different from us. Show our church how we can partner with and support our sister churches to reach people of all colors and backgrounds in McDuffie County. Forgive us for our own prejudices, uncharitable thoughts, unjustified assumptions, and our tendencies towards sameness. May we begin to reflect here on earth the unity and diversity of your nature and the reality of heaven as a place where every tribe and tongue are raised in praise as one voice around your throne. Amen. You know, the cross of Christ has the power to reconcile blacks and whites, Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Gentiles. But you know what's even more amazing than that? That the power of the cross has to reconcile a sinful people with a holy God. Is there any greater difference than that? Maybe today you need to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you can be reconciled with God and made right with Him. Maybe today you need to come 
and humble confession and repentance for your own prejudices, for your own biases, for things that you've said or done or failed to say or do. Maybe God has called you to unite with this church as we try to stand together. We're different people from different backgrounds with different philosophies and perspectives and views and worship styles and political persuasions, yet we come together as one to lift high the name of Jesus and make disciples of all nations. Would you come and join us and be united with us as one? You come as God has led you today. Would you stand and sing?